0: The vast majority of it was going to pay for the insurgency. It was about impressing the people in Washington rather than the people on the streets of Baghdad. I think there's plenty of evidence that the military did it. Off I went with two suitcases and some bed sheets and a couple of pots and pans.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Dyson House Podcast, where it's my job to talk to the experts who guide us through real issues in international affairs and how you can get involved in the fields that change the world. I'm your host, Peter Bateman. We're brought to you by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. On this episode, we're joined by Walkley award-winning journalist and current Fairfax foreign editor, as well as the investigations editor at The Age, Michael Bachelard. First of all, a brief apology for the sound quality of Michael's microphone. We ran into a couple of issues whilst recording. Despite the minor hiccup, this is essentially a must-listen for anybody considering a career as a journalist, and in particular, a foreign correspondent. Michael's first hand experience reporting from countries as varied as Indonesia and Iraq, coupled with his editorial experience working with correspondents from all over the world for Fairfax's many publications, has given him a unique perspective on the profession. This interview is full of tales on what it's like to be a foreign correspondent and what it's like to work with them, along with how one manages the lifestyle in 2018. Michael is more than willing to share his advice for young journalists looking for that overseas assignment. We also discuss why it's so important the world has foreign correspondents and what the industry can do to save them. I had so much fun talking to Michael, and I learned a lot myself, as I'm sure you will too. So please enjoy Foreign Correspondent with Michael Bachelard. Thanks for joining us on the Dyson House podcast, and thanks for lending us your studio here. You've been in the industry for almost 30 years now. You've worked with foreign correspondents in an editorial capacity, but you've also had experience on the ground yourself. So what I wanted to ask you firstly is, what is a foreign correspondent, and what is it like working with them from your perspective as an editor? and maybe how it differs from the reporting staff here in Melbourne at the age.
0: Well, primarily a foreign correspondent is just a good reporter. We send foreign correspondents into the field all the time without any particular field experience. Some of them will go with more expertise in their their subject areas, some of them will go with less. You know, when I went to Indonesia, for example, my first trip to Indonesia was the day I landed there to start being a foreign correspondent there. So why was I chosen? Not because I was an expert in Indonesia, I was chosen because I was a good reporter and that they trusted that because I was a good reporter, I'd be able to get across my subject matter quickly and in a way that that was quite quickly be able to deliver news and opinions and context and so on for the people back here. So primarily a foreign correspondent is a good reporter. So to that extent, they don't really differ from our best reporters here because all of those reporters should have those skills, getting across the subject quickly being able to translate it into into it, something that people will be interested in reading and then producing that quickly and readably within a, a short period of time. So, they're the skills you're after. In terms of editing foreign correspondence, well, we tend to pick, you know, our best reporters to go and do that, or at least the best ones among those who apply to go to a particular country. So, generally, dealing with them is easy or at least rewarding. Because they have strong views, they want to have a robust discussion with you about what they're doing, but ultimately their interest is exactly the same as my interest, which is to get the best story about that country into the uh, the
1: media. How do you manage time zones?
0: Look, it's tricky. It's hard, for example, to get a good conversation with my London correspondent because when he's waking up, I'm reaching the end of my day and it's starting to wind up really into deadline. And then when he's in the middle of his day, I'm going to bed and then late at night, his time, I'm waking up and getting going. So there's actually no great time to talk within hours to speak to Nick Miller, our London correspondent. So there's late, late night emails and your day does tend to extend out. I'm always aware, even with the say in Asia, and there's only a few hours difference, I'm always aware of trying let them get enough sleep. Not wake them up at five o'clock every morning because the news desk is demanding something, and to kind of let them have a, a relatively normal life.
1: And does that change with breaking news?
0: It does so. <laughs> I rang Nick Miller by mistake the other day, looking for somebody else, and uh, it was two o'clock his morning, at his time. He was in bed asleep, and he got up and crept out of his marital bed and sort of said, "Well, what is it?" And I said, "What?" Didn't you want to talk to me? No, Or somebody else. He said, You only ever call me when there's a terrorist attack or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, we will absolutely mobilize people if there's something going on. I mean, my first story as an Indonesia correspondent it was a sort of 5 a.m. wake up from my fixer in Bali, Kurobakan jail, burning down with you know, eight or nine or however many Australians in it at the time. You better get here.
1: Like you said, you've had some experience in the field. What is it like? With other correspondents, is there camaraderie between you guys?
0: There is the competitive tension. It's not again unfamiliar from what the kind of interactions we have with our competitors out on the road in Melbourne or Sydney. You know, we know who they are; they know who we are. Sometimes we're mates outside work, but there is a real competitiveness there too. You don't want to be beaten to a story. You want to beat them to the story, and you want to make your story better and faster and more accurate and all of those things. So. That said, I mean, obviously, if you're in an environment where you might be the only two Australians within a 1,000 kilometres, particularly if there's something a little bit dangerous going on or you don't know anybody else, you've travelled to a place, you will very often end up eating together and and having a drink together at the end end of the day and debriefing and that kind of thing. So there is certainly a camaraderie there.
1: On that note of dangerous situations, how does a company like Fairfax or or The Age deal with the personal security of their foreign correspondents? Well, we take it very
0: seriously. Whenever we're sending somebody, I guess there's two different kinds of foreign correspondents. There's the ones who are permanently based in a place and they get a pretty long leash because they know what they need to look out for in their patch in terms of safety and security. Then there are the kinds who go on occasional trips to this place or that place. We make sure that the people we send to dangerous places have what's called hostile environments training so that they're kind of used to planning for uh, thinking the worst may happen and planning for that contingency if we're in particularly dangerous places we get them to text an editor based in sydney or melbourne when they leave to go to the location they're reporting from when they arrive and when they're leaving that location and then they arrive back at the hotel or wherever wherever it is so We've got a, you know, at worst, a kind of four or five-hour gap in the middle where we don't know where they are, but we assume they're okay because they've told us they've arrived and everything's fine. In addition, we have dedicated people who, who consult to us who tell us about situations on the ground and cultural and, and safety and other issues to avoid or, or to, to remember. So we do try to take it pretty seriously. The other aspect of that that people often forget, the mental health aspect, and if you're seeing traumatic situations, if you're in a war zone and you're seeing you know, horrible things, sometimes that can, over time, particularly affect people's mental health. And we are very aware of that too and trying to manage and mitigate that counselling or debriefings with comrades or other members of staff and so on.
1: How have advancements in technology like smartphones and social media affected the way correspondents report? Lindsay Murdoch was telling a
0: story about what it used to be like in the old days, and these were before my days, I I arrived in smartphone days, but where a correspondent would go just off the reservation, basically, you could go go out somewhere remote, there'd be no access to phone lines or telegraph or any of the other communications infrastructure of the day, you could be out there for a week or 10 days or whatever, the news desk would assume you were safe and doing a job, but may not know, and then you'd turn up and, and file. And, you know, in Jakarta in the early days, there was one phone line at the Pope, down at the post office, and one international phone line and one telegraph line. So there'd be a queue of people waiting to file their stories. So that's obviously absolutely completely different now. I recall being up way, way out in remote Arche in a, a peat forest and literally knee deep in peat. I was shooting a video on my smartphone because I was not just writing words. I was also taking photographs and shooting video. So I was shooting video of what Pete was and I was demonstrating it by sticking my foot in it and sinking down to the knee in it. So I was doing that and the phone started ringing off the hook and it was, it was an Australian radio station ringing me. Could I please talk through with them the implications of Chappelle Corby being granted clemency by the then president, SB1? It was the first I'd heard of it. and no idea, but it was radio stations wanting me to comment on it. And I'm knee-deep in Pete, uh, in an archa rainforest uh, a, a thousand kilometers from bali you know that's just the instantaneous nature of it there is virtually nowhere anymore that you're out of contact from a smartphone the converse of that is that you have to file much more often you have to file much more quickly you, know, you can't any longer file something that happened two, two weeks ago you've you know you, you're on the spot and you've got to file more kinds of different media as i say photos video you are, as even as a newspaper, or traditionally a newsprint organisation like the Age, you're competing with the Wire Services to get your story up as quickly as they
1: are able to. On the topic of technology, and in particular smartphones, like you were just talking about, with public access to things like Twitter, and they're able to obviously record things, text, do pretty much everything a journalist is theoretically able to do, what can a correspondent do that, say, Twitter, for example, can't? That
0: brings me back to my very first answer, which is who is a correspondent, they're a very good reporter. And though a lot of people think that journalism is just seeing something and and saying it, that there's much more to it. And there are skills in rooting out information, in finding information, in doing an ethical and, if you like, dispassionate coverage of an issue, and doing it in a way that's accessible and readable and kind of engaging, So while there are many highly talented people filing things on Twitter or uh, in their blogs and so on, and we use those as resources and they are, you know, brilliant in their own way, journalism is a skill in its own right. And uh, I would argue very strongly that it's important to have journalistic voices in the field doing journalism in a way that journalists are trained and equipped to do. So... I'm not trying to say there's no value in these other things, but I'm, I'm saying there is a particular value
1: in journalism. And do you ever have to worry about cybersecurity, like for the locations of your reporters or even just when they're filing information back or, or sources on the ground? Is that something that you guys have had to take into account with the advances in technology?
0: Look, it's something that probably all media is, is still grappling with. I wouldn't suggest that anybody's got the answer to that. We are, I think, like everybody who uses a, a smartphone or an email, Address or anything like that, we're vulnerable to having our identities recognized either by state actors or non state actors. And it's, you know, we, we grapple with it, we, we, we're aware of it, we're worried about it, but I wouldn't say that we've got all the answers yet. We do use some encrypted messaging systems to try and protect sources. We, but again, some of them don't work very well overseas. In China, for example, the Great Firewall makes it very hard to escape. In fact, it makes it basically impossible to escape state surveillance. As a consequence, I assume that all of my communications with my China correspondent are either being listened to or could be listened to if somebody was after something. You know, that does constrain some of our conversations, but it's a reality.
1: Journalism is looking for different ways to sustain itself. We've obviously been going through a period of flux, I would say, and I think technology has a huge part to do with that. But I think it's really important that we have good, well-funded, uncompromised journalism. But how do, we, how do we have the money to keep something like the foreign correspondent in the time that we, that we find ourselves in right now? Well, that's a very good
0: question. And again, it's something we're grappling with. And a lot of organisations have either scaled down Their foreign correspondents all got rid of them entirely. We've gone the scaling down route. We don't have a Japan correspondent anymore. We used to have a Washington correspondent and a New York correspondent. We only have one correspondent now in Southeast Asia who does Indonesia and Southeast Asia rather than two. So we're scaling down, but we are very, very committed to keeping the kind of, the core of correspondents that we think give our journalism an international focus. There is no easy answer, how do we fix that? The best answer is to find a way to make journalism pay, and I think the best answer to that is to provide high-quality, trustworthy, engaging journalism. I would also argue that having correspondents providing that kind of content is a real part of that, is to say, you know, we care about the world, we are covering the world, we're doing it with our own voices and our own people, and we take it very seriously. And hopefully people who are looking to subscribe to a media organisation might look at that and think, well, I'll go with that one. To that extent, it's a kind of a chicken and egg argument. You can say, well, how can you afford correspondence? I might answer, how can, how can you afford not to answer?
1: Like you said, you've scaled down your foreign correspondence. I assume that when you're looking for stories in the areas that you don't have a dedicated person, you'd be working with freelancers, or stringers as they're sometimes called in the industry. So what is it like to work with a freelancer and can you give me an insight into sort of what their role is within the the news organisation?
0: Well, you're absolutely right. We have, for example, a freelancer now who contributes to us from Delhi and we used to have a correspondent there. Look, working with freelancers is a a bit like working with correspondents but not exactly the same. They, you know, you pay them by the piece rather than paying all their their expenses. You probably don't have as deep engagement with them. They're very often writing from more than one media organisation, as they should to make ends meet. And they're sort of living by their wits a little bit, whereas a correspondent has a certain security. So, for example, it would be very difficult to ask a freelancer to travel to a dangerous place, whereas a correspondent, you would say, well, that's part of your job. So you probably, you don't get as, as an editor, you don't get as much freedom or as much leeway with a freelancer, but they're still absolutely valuable part of the journalistic
1: ecosystem. Do you have the resources to be able to pay for their travel?
0: The cost benefit would have to be there. So, for example, we're covering the uh, trial in a few weeks' time of Neil Prakash, Australian jihadi who went to fight in Iraq, and Syria, and has been captured and is now in a prison in Turkey, and he's on trials. Clearly, high public interest to Australia, we, we'd want to cover that trial, but he's in a remote part of Turkey. We could send somebody from Australia to cover it, they'd need to get a fixer. We could send our freelancer, we could try and find a freelancer in Turkey to do it, or we could send a freelancer from some other nearby region. They're they're the choices, really, and you sort of do a cost-benefit analysis.
1: I know a lot of younger journalists are looking at freelancing as a, a sort of a way forward for them to break into the industry and especially to get jobs in some of the more prestigious papers, which seem to be reducing the amount of staff they have. Is that something that you would recommend and does it suit a particular type of person? I think it does
0: and yes, I would recommend it. So I saw you know, quite a number of people who ended up for whatever reason in Jakarta doing freelance work. It's particularly for the US and European market. It's not a particularly well-covered part of the world. The Y services don't have that many people there so there are opportunities to do stories and sell them. And you can live pretty cheaply there. So I think for somebody who's keen to break in or just keen to have an adventure and be a journalist, it's a good way to go. Several of those people that that were freelancers on spec when I was there have ended up working for either wire services or other media organisations. And so it can be quite a good pathway. But I think it's a tough life. Freelancing doesn't pay that well. And it's pretty sporadic. The, the, The pay is pretty sporadic. So it's, yeah, you, you wouldn't want to be going there with the thought that you're going to save up oh, and get a mortgage on the house in Sydney, for example. Probably not going to happen.
1: <laughs> it might not happen in Australia either. <laughs>
0: As I say, I would recommend it if you've got an adventurous spirit um, and some skills, then go for it.
1: Do you think it's possible that in the future there won't be any foreign correspondent?
0: Oh, it's absolutely possible, yeah. I mean, in the future, it's entirely possible there won't be any aid or Sydney Morning Herald. You know, there have been many, many big and seemingly impregnable media organisations internationally who've closed down. Yeah, it's a a pretty dicey time to be a journalist. On the upside, I would say there is a probably bigger demand than ever for high-quality, trustworthy, credible journalism globally. Something's got to be able to provide that. And if the old journalism shops can't, then something must. So there will be opportunities, I think, for people to be journalists. In what form, it's hard to tell. I hope, by the way, and I'm quite optimistic that an organisation like The Age can survive because people are beginning to subscribe in larger numbers. Google and Facebook duopoly has stolen all of our ad revenue. You know, They're having their own problems. Who knows what the future
1: holds? That's good to hear. So I was going to ask you, why do we need foreign correspondence, But I think that we've pretty much covered that throughout our discussion.
0: Well, I would say just specifically on that question, (laughs) it's about... Having an Australian, in, in our case, an Australian voice and an Australian view and an Australian sensibility on issues that matter to Australia on the global stage, either that have a direct impact on Australia or are just important for Australians to know about.
1: What do you look for when you're hiring a foreign correspondent?
0: I look for a good journalist. If they've got local expertise and subject matter interest, that's a, a great bonus, but I'm I'm looking for a good journalist who can, who I can trust to tell me what's important in their area and to do it well.
1: So, would you recommend just getting involved in everything you can as a journalism student?
0: As a journalism student, I would focus on being as good a student, uh, as good a journalist as you can. On writing, work on your news sense, on the things that are going to be of interest to readers. Work on putting together stuff that's engaging and of interest. And just just hone those skills. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a particular interest in in a particular country or subject, then that is all to the good. Uh, You know, if you can speak a language, if you can speak Chinese, that's, you know, that's incredibly valuable. But I'd choose a great journalist over a bad journalist who is a good Chinese speaker to be
1: my China correspondent any day. Michael, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. As always, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and give us a like or a review on whatever podcast platform you use. Or you can even share us with your friends. You can currently follow us on Twitter at Dyson House. That's D-Y-A-S-O-N House. And remember to check in every Thursday night for new episodes. If you live in Melbourne, be sure to check out the AAA Victoria's website at internationalaffairs.org.au forward slash Victoria where you can sign on to become a member and get access to bonus episodes, plus discounted events in Melbourne and access to our academic journal. Tomorrow at the Institute, former guests of the podcast, Rich and I will be speaking with Emma Skye on Iraq in retrospect, and we'll also be launching the book Revisiting Gendered States with Dr. Sharman Stone in early July. Next week is the final episode for season one, and we have former Ambassador John Woods to discuss his 42-year career in diplomacy and how those with similar ambitions to serve their country's interests overseas can make it happen in 2018. Until then, I'm Peter Bateman. Thanks for listening.